I uh, had a friend in high school whose name was Brian, who was very popular, very smart, very athletic. Just about everybody loved him. But one day we were in the cafeteria eating lunch together by ourselves, and he started to get really reflective, and he admitted to me that he felt like a total loser in life. Uh, he actually got big tears in his eyes, and he told me that he felt very alone, that he felt like he didn't have any friends at all, and that he was pretty much miserable. And when he told me that, it shocked me. I I thought, how could somebody like Brian, of all people, feel that way uh, about himself? And now I understand it a little bit better. I I understand why people who live seemingly ideal lives can sometimes feel so bad about themselves. There's a line in Psalm 62 that I think gives a sense for the problem. David wrote, my soul finds rest in God alone. And I really believe that that unrest that Brian was feeling in his life was a longing for God. It was like a separation anxiety from his creator in disguise. Uh, Augustine said the same thing this way. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I think that's what Brian's problem was. He was a restless heart that was missing the Lord. Now, I was a really young Christian at the time, and, and I remember what Brian said catching me completely off guard. I was totally unprepared for him to say that, and I remember wanting to talk with him about my faith. I had this dim idea that that might help him, but I, I remember just kind of clamping up. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do, and so I, I really, to this day, I don't remember saying anything at all. In fact, I might not have literally said anything to Brian at all. This morning, what I want to think about is, what could I have said to him? What could I have said to Brian that would have actually helped him in that moment? What can all of us say, those of us who are believers in Christ, to those that we talk with who are in the same situation that Brian was? What might have helped? And believe it or not, I think that this passage gives us some incredibly helpful guidance of where to start in some of those conversations. This uh, is a story of a man who lived in a cemetery. And it's one of the strangest stories maybe in all of the New Testament. In fact, maybe even in all of the Bible, especially because at first it seems like it's straight out of a Stephen King novel. Uh, We're not told much about the background or the history of this man. I would love to know it, but it remains a mystery. We can only guess and surmise that he had apparently been involved in his life in some very dark things, and that, in fact, he'd actually become possessed at some point by demons. Now, most of us, or or maybe none of us, have, have never met a person who was possessed by demons. So it's really, really hard for us to wrap our minds around this. The topic of angels and, and demons is kind of a big one that we're going to leave for another day. But it is important to know that the Bible assumes that demons are real. It teaches that they are fallen angels who hate the things that God loves. Primarily people. God loves people most, and so therefore demons hate them most themselves as well. The Bible teaches that they seek to undermine the the good plans of God, but also that they will ultimately fail. 
And we see even here clearly in this passage that they fall completely underneath the scope and power and authority of God. And so for Christians, while demonic forces are to be respected, we're told that they should not be feared. C.S. Lewis said that when it comes to demons, people often make two different kinds of errors. The first is to either disbelieve in their existence altogether or to believe in their existence but to feel an unhealthy sense of of interest in them. And I think that's good balance. I, I think that's good advice. But this man, for whatever reason, had been caught up in some very serious spiritual darkness. And we're told here that he was possessed not just by one demon, but by a multitude of demons, a legion of demons. And apparently what had happened was this had made him into a very violent and wild man. In fact, you get the sense as you read this passage that he was like an animal. People tried to keep him in a cage, and they did everything that they could to get him under control, but no one was strong enough to contain him. And every time, during the multiple times they tried to put him in chains, he had broken free from the chains, and the shackles flew away in pieces. And so here, what you have is an incredibly violent, impossibly strong, demon-possessed man who... By the way, the the book of Matthew tells us, ran around completely naked, who lived in the tombs at the cemetery and spent all of his days and nights screaming and cutting himself with stones. Kind of creepy, huh? Can you imagine how much this man would have been feared among the people in the village? Can you imagine the chill that would crawl up the spines of those who heard him scream in the middle of the night. And can you think about the things that were said about this man around the campfire? We are told that when Jesus' boat pulls up to shore, the man comes running out of the tombs towards him. And that's quite a picture, isn't it? Here you have this super strong, demon-possessed, screaming, naked man who comes barreling out of the tombs at Jesus and the disciples as they arrive on the boat. What will Jesus do, the disciples are thinking. And what they find is that he doesn't even flinch. This man doesn't even phase him. Jesus sees right through the horrors of this man's life into the soul of the man himself, and and he has compassion. He decides that he's going to help. And this man deserves Jesus' compassion. I mean, that part that that I I just said that's found in verse 5 about the man spending night and day crying out among the tombs and cutting himself with stones tells you that this was a guy who was in total misery. He spends every day and every night screaming out for some kind of relief and maybe in an effort to cope with his situation, maybe in an attempt even at suicide, he is cutting himself with the stones. This is a guy who is in agony and is obviously being tormented. And the man falls down at Jesus' feet and they have this conversation. And in the conversation, it becomes very quickly crystal clear who is in charge. 
Jesus exerts his sovereign authority and power as the Son of God and demands that the demons come out of the man. And interestingly, they beg him to to send them into this herd of pigs that's nearby. And and so Jesus gives him permission to do so for some reason. And then in front of all of the herdsmen, sure enough, the demons go into this herd of of 2,000 pigs and the demons do the same thing to the pigs as they did to the man. They do everything that they can do to destroy him, destroy them. And the pigs go rushing off the edge of a steep cliff and drown in the sea right before the eyes of the farmers. I told you this was a strange story. It truly is. It's one of the strangest. Now, why does Jesus allow this to happen? Why does he allow these demons to go from the man into the pigs? It, it seems kind of unfair to the pigs, don't you think? Well, I think there's, there's two reasons. One of them is the primary reason. The other is kind of an accidental benefit that we learn from. The primary reason, I think, is that it gives the people who are watching evidence that the demons have actually left the man, Right? If Jesus had just sent the demons, allowed them to go into the air, nobody who was watching could have seen that it actually happens. But when they enter in the pigs, now the the shepherds, the herdsmen can see visually that the man is free. The demons have been removed from him and sent elsewhere. And so the pigs are the proof that Jesus did what he actually said he would do. The pigs are the evidence of his power. Somebody said last service, the proof is in the pudding, that in this case, the proof is in the pigs. And that's true. That's part of the point behind this. They are the evidence that this man had been set free. But but here's the second way that's helpful for us. The second thing it does is it shows us just how much value Jesus placed on this poor man. What's the value of the crazy guy who lives in the cemetery? What's the value of the outcast, the nutcase, the one who terrorizes the village? Is he worth more or is he worth less than 2,000 pigs? Now, 2,000 pigs are very important. We'd all agree with that, not only because of their large uh, financial value, which would have been huge, especially in that day, but also because they're living and breathing creatures, right? We feel sorry for these pigs. The pigs are obviously of great worth. And yet to Jesus, there is no question that this man is far more valuable than they. And what this does for us is it it begins to highlight a kind of uh, contrast that begins to happen in this passage. That that though Jesus literally gives this man his life back, the villagers seem to almost wish he hadn't done that. Because it sort of messed with their economy. they're, They're sorry for the loss of their pigs. And they're a little afraid of Jesus because if he can do something like that, what might he do next, right? And where Jesus puts the value on the man, the villagers put the value on the pigs, and they decide to literally beg Jesus to get out of here. Go home. Just leave. We don't want you around. They've seen the power and the compassion of Christ up close, and they totally reject him. And so Jesus does the thing that he does often sometimes when people reject him. 
He leaves. He listens to them. He won't force himself upon them. And he begins to leave. And the passage says that he turns and he begins to climb in the boat when all of a sudden the man who lived in the cemetery starts to beg him too. He begs to come along with them. And you know what? If I was that man, I would have done exactly the same thing. The last thing I would have wanted to do was to stick around with those villagers who cared more about their dumb pigs than they did for me. They must have been incredibly appealing for this man to get into that boat and go with Jesus so that he could start a new life and never have to think about his old one again. But for some reason, Jesus did not want him to do that. He wanted him to stay rooted right there, right where he was, and Jesus wouldn't allow him to get into the boat. And the reason that Jesus stopped him, we are told, is that he had an assignment for this man. Jesus wanted this man to be a messenger. And he tells this man exactly what his message was to be in verse 19. Take a look at that verse. This is a great verse. It says, and Jesus did not permit him to get in the boat, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The first thing Jesus tells this guy to do is to go to his friends. Now that alone is kind of a shocker, isn't it? I mean, does a guy like this have any friends? Is there anyone that this man can can look to as a friend? I don't know, but apparently there are. Uh, Apparently, at least he used to have a few before he scared them all away. But Jesus says to him, find those people that you have connection with and relationship with and share with them the things that God has done in your life. Jesus says, don't come with me. He says, go to them. I want you to be a courier Uh, an envoy, a message bearer of hope and good news to anyone who might be willing to listen to you. What Jesus was doing is he was sending this man into his community to be his witness. And as most of you would know, Jesus sends us to be witnesses in our community too. There's this great vivid passage in 2 Corinthians 5 where Jesus gives an illustration. Actually, it's the Apostle Paul. And he says that we too, like this man, are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so we, just like this man who lived so long ago, have a message that we are to give to our friends too. So what does he tell this guy to say to his friends? He says, tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I love just how simple that is, right? It's not a complicated message at all. Jesus is saying to this man, just tell them your story. Tell them what happened. Tell them what I did for you. And what a story it is that this guy has to tell. It seems like Jesus' instructions should be very simple. There should be no problem here, right? Well, maybe not. I mean, if you think about it from our perspective, maybe, But if you think about it from that guy's perspective, it might not have been that easy of a story for him to share. I mean, he's got one of the most cringeworthy histories that I've ever heard of in my life. Not only is he living in a cemetery at the tombs, but he's possessed by demons, 
All he does is, is scream and try to injure himself. And anyone who sees him sees him running around naked. That's not a story I would want to tell about myself. How about you? Right? Rather than telling people about this story, what he probably wanted to do, and, and the reason for wanting to get into the boat, is just to forget that story. But, but what Jesus tells him to do here, I think, is, is really worth reflecting on because there's a sense in what Jesus is, is doing here is he's giving him permission not to be ashamed of his past. He's giving him permission not to be ashamed of his past, his failures, his weaknesses, those dark, sinful things that he was involved in, his embarrassing situation and behaviors. But instead, what Jesus wants him to do is to redeem those things by sharing his story with others so that he would be a living illustration of God's power and mercy to anyone who might listen. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying to this guy is, look, I know you want to get into this boat. I don't blame you. I know you want to put your past in the rearview mirror and never think about it or talk about it to anyone again. But I want you to stay here with the people who know you who you cannot hide your past from. I want you to stay with the people who were afraid of you, who heard your screams at night and saw you cutting yourself with those stones and looked at you while you were naked. And he says, and I want you to tell them what I did for you here today. I want you to carry this message so that other people can find my mercy too. And Jesus essentially tells this man to use himself, his own story of finding grace when he needed it most, as as kind of a living illustration of what Jesus could do with anyone. What a way to redeem those years he lost at the cemetery. What a way to give those years value. Well, let me ask you the obvious question this morning that I'm sure you knew was coming. Do you have a story like this man? Do you have a story like this man? Do you have any cemetery years in your life? Do you have a time you can look back on in your life where God's mercy collided with your pain? Do you have any time when God's love intersected with your hurt? And then the second question is this. Do any of your friends know about that? Do your friends know about that? It is through the container of your experience, your witness to what God has done in your life, that God wants to carry the message of the gospel, the message of his mercy to other people. And everybody's story is going to look a little different. No Christian story is ever the same, but they all have the same heart. They all contain the same ideas. I have a friend of mine who um, lived next door to a police officer, which is no big deal until you understand that he was selling drugs out of his house at the time. And uh, he lived in this constant sense of fear that he was going to get caught. It it was like he was stuck in in this life and he was miserable and and afraid. He, he, He couldn't be in his own home without thinking that there was going to be a knock at the door of someone coming to arrest him. But then into that situation, the Lord stepped into his life with his grace for this man, my friend, and everything changed. 
And it's a great story. I know another man whose life was very different from this person. He grew up going to church, walking the straight and narrow ever since he was young. But he made a huge mistake along the way. He thought that somehow he could be good enough himself to earn the favor of God. That if he could just do enough, be good enough, learn enough, know enough, externally look like he had it all together enough that God would approve of him. But the problem was he never knew if he had done enough. How could he ever know? And he was as miserable and afraid as this guy was because he, he, he worried that maybe he hadn't done what he needed to do. And, and he lived under a great sense of pressure, realizing that he'd built his faith only on himself. And then the Lord, too, stepped into his life with his grace, and it changed everything for this man. That's an amazing story, too. I mean, some people, their story is stories of, of unrighteousness, where the cemetery was very, very clear and external. Other people, their stories are stories of self-righteousness, where their cemetery is, is more internal, but every Christian has cemetery in their past. And we all have them in our present, too. Some stories are, are more dramatic than others. Some stories are more specific and detailed. But every single Christian has a great story because every single Christian has been saved only by grace. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that even though we, that being every single Christian who has ever lived, are dead in our transgressions and sins, God has made us alive in Christ. And so every single child of God at some point has been like that man who lived in the cemetery, far away from God, lost and without hope. And yet, too, every single Christian has received the mercy of God. So if you're a Christian here this morning, what's your story? Whatever it is, God wants to use it, warts and all, to make himself known to your friends. You know, I, I think sometimes what can happen is that we Christians can accidentally present kind of a sanitized version of ourselves or our stories. There's places sometimes we don't want to go and we don't want to think about. We, we don't want to always let people know about our failures and mistakes. I, uh, I learned really quickly in teaching as a youth pastor when I, when I first started that it's better to try not to tell stories about my successes when I'm teaching. Part of that is because there just wasn't a lot of material for that. It was, it was harder to find. Part of that is because it can be very self-serving, right? But you know what the biggest part of it is? Because nobody cares. If you want to bore students, tell them stories about your own successes in life. Nobody wants to listen to them. They, they tune out. I'm, I'm sure that you do as well. But when I talk about my screw-ups in life, that's when people are, are really listening. And the reason is because that's what they can relate to. But even more so, I found that when I talk about my screw-ups, but I also talk about the ways that I'm finding God's grace in that, the, the ways that he's teaching me things about myself, the ways he's helping me to work through my pain and loss, then I find people are really listening. 
And the reason that they're really listening is because they want that too. They want to believe and know that there is grace, there is mercy, there is help, there is goodness that's out there available to them, that they can be accepted by God, even though their life might feel like such a cemetery at the moment. You see, the the truth is that the Christians, all of us, are just broken people that God's putting back together again. We're all lost people that that he found. We're all dead people that that he's made alive again. We're we're all sinful people that that he's cleaned up and, and washed and set free. And God wants us to tell people about that. God wants people to know that about us. And so this morning, if you are a Christian, I know not all of you are, but if you are, let me ask you, what is your story Where were you when God's grace intersected with your life? Can you articulate that? You know, you really should be able to articulate that. Many of us can't, and that's okay. It's it's probably just because we've never sat down to think about that before, but I want to encourage you to do so. I want to encourage you even to write that out in a notebook or on your computer or give that some consideration. What is your story. And the reason that I give you that encouragement is because I believe that your story matters to God. Obviously, you do. God saved you, right? Your story does too. But not only that, your friends matter to God. Your friends matter to God as much as this guy's friends mattered to God. And I think some of the heartbeat of the application of this passage is that we ought to be courageous about our stories with our friends. You know, we we live in a culture where everybody does their best to hide their flaws and mistakes. We, We live in a Facebook world where everybody presents their best up for display. Either that or, or sometimes they, they, they present their worst up for display, but they kind of enjoy it. They live in it. They, they want to be here in that. But you know, it's so rare for, for, for people to expose their pain and their problems, but, but, but wanting to uh, work through them, wanting to find grace and help, wanting to change, wanting to grow. It is so Rare, And I really believe that one of the best ways that we can love our friends is, is by just being willing to show them our flaws, to, to show them the, the chinks in our armor, to be willing to share with them about some of our experiences in the cemetery. And I'm really not talking about glamorizing past mistakes. I'm not talking about dwelling in them. I'm not talking about manipulating people. But what I mean is is being appropriately transparent about the stupid things we've done and thought in life, even when they're things that are really embarrassing and and, and paint us into a a bad light. I mean, those things were, and those times that we found ourselves restless and lost and how afraid we've felt in life at times. I think this passage teaches us that we ought to have the courage to tell other people where we were at when Christ found us and and gave us his mercy, even if it's just just right now, even if it's just here and now. And as we do that, our cemetery years are used to illustrate and highlight the power of God to save. 
And in the same way, we too, just like this man, becomes, become Christ couriers, his envoys, his messengers of hope and life and good news. You know, I really wish that I had done that in my conversation with Brian in the cafeteria that day in high school. I didn't do that. I, I clammed up. I, I, for some reason, got to thinking this conversation's about me, not about him, Right? I've got to have the the right answers for him. I've I've got to fix him somehow, solve his problem, give some kind of a deep insight, or just, hey, look, this is out of my my league. I can't go there. You're going to have to talk to a pastor or a counselor or something like that. But you know what I really wish I'd done? I really wish that I just listened really carefully to him and that I'd asked him the best questions that I could think of to really draw him out, and, and that I'd have a, a lot of understanding and compassion for him, and I resonated, if not with his particular problems, at least his, his pain, so that he might know he was not alone. And then I really wish that as God would have given me the opening to do so, that I would have done just what this says told him how much the Lord has done for me and how he's had mercy on me. And my hope and prayer this morning is that in your life, with your family, with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with your friends, and in our community, that together all of us who are a part of this church family, I hope and pray that God would use us in the lives of our friends, just as I really believed he was going to use this man in the lives of his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again for this reminder that there is nobody who's too far from you, that that they can't be saved and rescued from their darkness and death and sin. I mean, this guy, it's hard to imagine somebody who is in a worse situation, and, and yet... You rescued him. You loved him. There was no part of you that that did not want him as your son. Thank you that that's true for all of us this morning. There is no person who is too far away from you that they cannot be redeemed. We pray that maybe those who might be here this morning who may be struggling with that would really see that that's true and and would find some sense of connection with this man so that their stories might end like his story did. And Father, we pray for those of us who have experienced that, that we would never forget where we were when you found us. Some of us were very young, some of us were older, but who would we be now if your grace had not stepped into our lives? We thank you for that. We pray that we might see our friends with the same compassion that Jesus saw this man and that you might use us to effectively, lovingly, carefully, boldly proclaim all that you have done so that you might do those things for them as well. We pray that there would be great fruit that would come from our church as as we declare the goodness of our Savior Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.